Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving, and to celebrate, we are dedicating our entire episode today to stories about food. Because here in Louisiana, we know that food not only fosters culture and community, but also has been a way in which many black chefs, particularly black female chefs, were able to find economic success. Lena Richard was the first known African-American to host her own cooking TV show, which aired on WDSU television in New Orleans from 1949 to 1950. And Leah Chase was so groundbreaking at the helm of the Dookie Chase restaurant that she was the inspiration for Disney's first black princess. So today, as we think about food, we want to honor some of the most prolific cooking pioneers in the state's history. We spoke with Zella Palmer, endowed chair and director of the Ray Charles Program in African-American Material Culture at Dillard University. She also made the 2016 documentary, The Story of New Orleans Creole Cooking, The Black Hand in the Pot. Also, she authored the 2019 cookbook, Recipes and Remembrances of Fair Dillard. Today, we're going to revisit our conversation on the history of Louisiana's pioneering black female chefs. Zella Palmer, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So first, let's go back for a minute into history to about 1900 when the Times-Picayune released a Creole cookbook, which was a collection of Creole recipes contributed by white women, but given to them by black women. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, there were many um, cookbooks that were published uh, during slavery, uh, during post-Reconstruction and after, but the Times-Picayune Creole cookbook is quite interesting because this is a time period in Louisiana's history where, um, you know, it, it, it plainly states in the introduction that they gathered the recipes from the Tantis or Aunties and Creole. And, you know, it was important to these women to now white women to share recipes between each other because they're entering into a time period not that long after slavery. I mean, it took time uh, to gather these recipes and the recipes were a blueprint for uh, white women to continue to, um, you know, provide uh, a kind of Lazis Le Bon Ton lifestyle, a Versailles lifestyle for their families and for their husbands and society. And they still needed to you know, present themselves as women of society. And so they needed to learn these recipes, especially for those who never learned how to cook because they always had enslaved labor, right? So, so this all came from a Creole background. What kind of credit did the Black women who helped, you know, contribute these recipes and, and develop this culture get when it came time for this cookbook to come out? Well, you know, there was never any compensation. There was, you know, illustrations of the stereotypical version of a tanti or auntie. There's countless uh, illustrations of Black women who were seen as kind of like these jovial characters happy to serve their mistresses, right? Hmm. And so um, this perpetuated a series of stereotypes of Black women um, being happy to serve for um, a community that enslaved them, um, who also, you know, had nowhere to go. If, if, if they were, you know, formerly enslaved and were a certain age, they had nowhere to go uh, once they were free and didn't have the means to, 
you know, survive on their own. You know, we see the the beginning of all of these uh, stereotypical characters of the happy um, slave. Can you give me a couple of examples, a couple quick examples? What were some of these early Creole recipes and what inspired the style of cooking? If you look at the, the Times Picune Creole cookbook, I mean, there's so many recipes. There's oyster gumbo, there's uh, shrimp gumbo filet, so many different types of gumbos, crab gumbo, okra gumbo, squirrel, crab jambalaya. I mean, this was a cuisine that was um, delicate, that was well thought of, had, using the abundance uh, that Louisiana's uh, provided. I mean, it was profound that these that black women you know creole afro creole black women created this cuisine you know and it was passed down from generation to generation on their lips so we're speaking with zella palmer endowed chair and director of the ray charles program in african-american material culture at dillard university zella let's fast forward a little bit to some of the prominent black chefs in the late 19th and early 20th centuries who were some of the first ones to open their own restaurants? And what what did that mean for their community and for the economy? Well, in the 19th century, we're talking about the end of slavery and there were no uh, black owned restaurants in Louisiana um, at that time. Um, you, however, you did have caterers like Nellie Murray. Uh, Nellie Murray was the queen of Creole cuisine during that time. And in the Times Picune in the 1890s, they uh, lauded her and that um, you're nobody if you didn't know who Nellie Murray um, is and if you didn't have a party that was catered by her. Now, Nellie Murray was a third generation um, enslaved plantation cook, but she was freed by de facto by the end of you know the Civil War. And she um, created an empire because you know this is during a time where after the Civil War, you know, society specifically white Creole society still wanted to entertain. And so they still needed those services provided and she made a fortune. And it's, it's fascinating because I was able to find out that not only, you know, when you look at the Chicago World's Fair of, uh, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, Nellie Murray was there. And also this first time Aunt Jemima was sold. And so at the same you know, World's Fair, here's Nellie Murray independently, you know, has her own business and, you know, they're raving about her. So at the same World's Fair, at the same World's Fair, you selling Aunt Jemima in a box, um, you know, for this kind of plantation idea of, you know, slavery in a box and Black women once again being used as, you know, stereotypical ideas of what slavery was like, and it was, you know, a happy um, situation. Yeah, so Nellie Murray, uh, the, the Aunt Jemima, you know, figure, sort of the exception, right? She was the exception, absolutely. She was the exception. By the time she died, she had amassed a fortune. She had um, traveled all over the globe. I mean, she was the caterer of society at that time, not only in New Orleans, but also in New York. And she set the groundwork for... Black women, you know, like Lena Richards and others who came along later who were able to actually own restaurants. Hmm. So she set kind of a groundwork. And then fast forwarding to the television age where 
We have Lena Richard. She was the first African-American chef to host her own cooking show. Let's start with her life before the TV show. How did she get into that position and become a successful chef? Well, um, you know, this is a time period, you know, in the 20th century, uh, early part of the 20th century, where you had a lot of domestic servants. I mean, that was the only industry that a lot of Black women, um, you know, only jobs they could get were as domestics. And so we're talking about a woman who was born at the end of the 19th century. So she came from, I'm sure, just as Nellie did, a matrilineal line, a lineage of Black women who had no choice but to either be enslaved, to be cooks, to uh, this, this system of oppression and slavery, or fast forward, they had no choice but to be domestics because that was the only jobs that were offered to them. Mm-hmm. And so later she would start her own frozen food company. Uh, what was Absolutely. this industry like at that time? How is it significant for her to have some involvement? Well, uh, you know... Lena Richards was just profound. I mean, she was an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. There's so many countless women that came before her, Rose Nicole. And then here comes Lena Richards, and then fast forward, you have Leah Chase, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have Black women in uh, New Orleans, you know, today that are building food empires. It's fascinating to see this 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 trajectory of Black entrepreneurship, but specifically with Black women. So Lena Richards, you know, she was a domestic and was able to work for some of the most elite families in New Orleans, uh, who also took a liking to her. Um, she started her own culinary school, and it was interesting that it wasn't just a cooking school, it was Lena Richards Catering School, right? Because hmm. she understood that catering to uh, society, you know, specifically elite white society, was profitable during that time. So through, you know, these society women, she was able to build an empire and generational wealth, you know, build this catering school that would teach other Black women who were domestics how to make their business profitable. And Lena's recipes, um, she was able to start a food process. She understood that similar to other food, frozen foods that were coming out during the time in the 1950s, she was able to um, start packaging her own food. But what's fascinating is, you know, we talk about cultural appropriation today and right. intellectual property. The bird and bottle, and you know, took her recipes when she went home and didn't give her credit, and they started their own business using her recipes and taking her name off the recipes and trying to sell it and package um, these food products. So, so this is a narrative of um, like you you see elsewhere in other industries where you have a, a black individual whose you know intellectual property is appropriated, uh, who was an entrepreneur, but who has Absolutely. something taken away from them. Absolutely. And then, you know, the chef that came after her, you know, appearance at Bird and Bottle and was uh, James Beard. And you look at the success that James Beard has today and his name and recognition alone. But, you know, unless you, you know, are in tune and and know about Lena Richards, the most Americans don't know about Lena Richards. Can you tell me a little bit about this television show what did she share and how did the community respond? So, uh, you know, Lena Richards, unfortunately, we don't have, uh, you know, she was she was on live 
American television. This was before we were able to record live television. However, you know, Lena Richards and her daughter were able to be part of the first moment in American television, which is so historic. And here this um, Black woman who was, in my opinion, was during that time, you know, next, next to Nellie Murray and Rose Nicole, who created an empire and was selling coffee out the French market, when was able to purchase herself out of slavery, as well as her, some of her family members. She was, you know, just continuing in this culture of entrepreneurship with Black women in food ways. And she set the groundwork that we must never forget for those who come afterwards, even after Leah Chase. We, we have to continue this legacy. So why do these chefs have such profound legacies? Why do we remember them and what do they still teach us today? I think, uh, you know, historians like myself and scholars and professors out there, we are lifting up these stories and we are giving them voice uh, again. Like I said, you know, the Nellie Murrays, the uh, Lena Richards, the Leah Chases, we have to keep their, we have a responsibility to keep their legacy alive, to keep their names alive. And when you consider to think that Lena Richards saw a need for a catering school was profound for the time because we're talking about a time when there weren't that many culinary schools. You know, African-Americans were forced to cook by, you know, violence, by domestic and international violence when you consider the transatlantic slave trade and the domestic slave trade. We were forced to serve our oppressors. So, you know, here she is trying to revolutionize, you know, the time period by giving, empowering Black women who are only seen as domestics and not even seen at all, and now are able to figure out a way, how do I turn my oppressor into my customer? Uh-huh. And a loyal customer. And that's some of the entrepreneurial spirit and some of the uh, spirit of coming up with something new, an idea that wasn't come up with before. Absolutely. And it clearly it was her goal to, you know, build generational wealth so it could be passed down to her daughter. You see that today and, you know, and what Leah Chase did with her family. It was important to make this a family business so that they could um, gain their liberation and create their own narrative and own their own products. What do you think Black entrepreneurs here in the South could learn today from these examples from history? What do you think the primary lessons should be? The primary lessons, um, that someone always came before you, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And the challenges and obstacles have always been real. However, uh, what you know, we can learn from those who came before us who were able to uh, find a no way out of no way, you know? And some of us, we are the in spite of people. We are definitely the in spite of people. And these women, in particular in New Orleans, a city that is a culinary mecca for the world, here we have plenty of stories of Black women in every century who made a profound mark on the, on the culinary history of America. And always we're mindful of creating opportunities for other Black women. 
Well, we've been speaking with historian Zella Palmer, endowed chair and director of the Ray Charles Program in African American Material Culture at Dillard University. Thank you so much for joining us today, Zella. Thank you so much. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. We can't talk about food without talking about food insecurity. While New Orleans is famous for its delicacies, food is not readily available to everyone, especially those living in parts of the city known as food deserts. But there are some organizations looking to change that, such as I Am New Orleans, which focuses on community-led efforts to improve racial equity in the city, including an urban farm geared toward youth development. We spoke with Pamela Broom, 7th Ward Revitalization Project Manager with New Corp, Inc., to learn more about how the organization is targeting food insecurity throughout the city today. Pamela Broom, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Adam, for having me. First off, Pamela, tell us a bit about food inequity in the city of New Orleans. Why is it such a problem and what are the factors that contribute to it? Well, food inequity in New Orleans is not only um, an issue in New Orleans, it's a global issue, but certainly we want to focus on our local community and the fact that we're talking about inequity means that there's not equal access for everybody. And when we talk about food, we want to talk about healthy, nutritious, affordable food you know, even enjoyable food because we are a food city inside of an agricultural state. And I know some of the factors are shared in common among urban cities across America. What are some of the factors that are that are contributing to the issue, especially in New Orleans? Okay, I would say the the foundational issue is poverty. The second issue is not having situations in neighborhoods that are uh, equal in terms of having places where people can actually access and purchase the healthy food that individuals and families need. Many people are familiar with food deserts, meaning neighborhoods that are sort of void of those places where you can access healthy, fresh food. Some call it food apartheid. Uh, you know, it goes even deeper. Uh, food swamps talk about places in neighborhoods that lack supermarkets, places where you can certainly have access to fast foods and junk foods, but, you know, fresh produce and, and nutritious food uh, is not easily accessible. What are some of the racial factors that go into food inequity? I think that, you know, sort of speaks to the basic needs of everybody. Food, clothing, shelter, right? And what's the first one? Food. <laughs> we can't survive without it. We all need it. And I think also food is those items that sort of speak to the communal nature of gathering. I think that's important. Yeah. So let's talk about solutions. What are some of the solutions that you see and why do you think it's important to get the community involved, so we're not just relying on, say, government officials to address the issue. I've been a part for a very long time um, of this community of growers in the city of New Orleans. So people 
over the decades that have sort of um, engaged in a revival of traditions of having backyard gardens and community gardens and that sort of um, thing related to growing practices of fresh foods. And New Orleans, I believe, has a very, a very grounded growing community. So I think that some of the challenges that we face are actually how to better engage with community members that could truly benefit from engaging or even re-engaging in growing traditions. Even if it's a, a pot on your front porch or a little plot in your side yard or your backyard, even if you're just growing some herbs and some green onions and parsley, you can grow that and create a pasta dish or throw it in some beans or something like that, but you're actually contributing um, to reconnecting to growing fresh food. We're speaking with Pamela Broom, 7th Ward Revitalization Project Manager. Pamela, the city's youth are really at the center of it. What does that look like? Why is it important to include youth perspectives? Youth are always um, needed because they bring the energy and the, the vitality and the questioning and the creativity that support this notion of food equity and access and infrastructure and what this all means. So having the youth alongside, certainly those of us that have been doing this work for some time, always having a, a, a youth to a company we can mentor. I've been gardening since I was eight years old. So I know how important it is to have some older folks invest in young people to teach them. Uh, these issues of equity, access, community outreach and engagement, and how important it is to really have the city of New Orleans, our municipal agencies, engage with us in building a better infrastructure for supporting programs like ours that have gardens that are designed to reach out and teach and better engage with our community members. I think New Orleans is a, is a phenomenal place to focus on better ways to to grow and green our city. We have a year-round growing season here, and often I believe we don't take advantage of what's possible here. You know, some folk may feel that gardening is just a little bit too much for them. It's a little bit too hard, but maybe you like growing flowers. And to be able to talk to people about, yes, Growing flowers in your yard really means something. It adds to the health of our ecosystem. It attracts bees and butterflies. You know, somebody down the street might really be interested in growing okra and greens, seasonal produce. Others may just want some fruit trees. But if we can talk about creating an ecosystem, neighborhood by neighborhood, I think it's really something of value. Pamela Broom, 7th Ward Revitalization Project Manager. Thank you for joining us today, Pamela. Thank you, Adam. And from WRKF and WWNO, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. A thanks to our guests, Zella Palmer, endowed chair and director of the Ray Charles Program in African American Material Culture at Dillard University, and to Pamela Brown, 7th Ward Revitalization Project Manager with New Corp, Inc. 
Our managing producer on the program is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays at 12 noon and 7 p.m. The show is available on Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be off tomorrow for Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoy the special holiday programming we have arranged for you on WRKF and WWNO. From all of us who craft Louisiana Considered for you every day, have a pleasant Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening. We'll see you Friday. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.